Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Have you ever heard of a little plant called kudzu? Kudzu is not a native species to North America. It came to the United States as a gift given to us by the Japanese in 1876 for our centennial birthday. It was immediately loved by gardeners, what with its large green leaves and purple blooms. And so individuals began planting it and nurseries began selling seeds through the mail. It was 50 years later during the Dust Bowl years when kudzu really rooted itself into American soil. The United States government was seeking an effective way to conserve soil and kudzu seemed to fit the bill perfectly. The vine was touted as a wonder plant, a near miracle of nature. And the Department of Agriculture in the 1930s planted the seeds everywhere. 100 million kudzu seedlings were planted. And the government actually paid farmers to plant it on their fields. They thought that once the soil was healthfully restored, that the farmers could then just plow over it and return to planting cotton and soybean and corn. Oh, but no, no, no. Kudzu cannot be gotten rid of so easily. No one knew that the greatest wonder of this plant was its exponential, unstoppable growth. Kudzu is a gift that seems to keep on giving, and it can now be found throughout North America, including 30 United States states and parts of Canada. But nowhere is kudzu's reach more pervasive than here in our home region of the southeast. It's impossible to drive a few miles down an Alabama highway or a Mississippi back road without seeing kudzu smothering road signs, telephone poles, barns, pine tree thickets, school baseball fields, and even a sleepy farmer who takes an afternoon nap if he takes that nap too close to the woods. Kudzu can grow 18 inches a day. It has climbed and coiled and crept its way across millions of acres here in the south. Kudzu has also invaded southern culture. I loved how you recognized it all immediately. It's now as much a part of our shared experience in the South as homemade biscuits and sweet tea and Baptist church steeples. But we adapt. We shade our porches with it. We feed it to our livestock. It's used as a dye. People make baskets out of it. Some people brew it. Some people ferment it, spray it, cut it, mow it, and curse it. But we cannot ignore it. It's here to stay. I wonder if Jesus would say such a thing as this. The kingdom of God is like kudzu planted in a Georgia field. I actually believe he would say something like that. It's a picturesque description 
not a detailed explanation, and he said something seriously close to it in Matthew 13. Jesus connects the kingdom of God, the God movement, as Clarence Jordan called it, to a common agricultural plant that all of Jesus' listeners knew and understood all too well. This is Matthew 13, verses 31 through 35, a third farming parable from this chapter, and for good measure, I'll include a fourth as Jesus tells two miniature parables together. Here is another illustration Jesus used. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of garden plants. It grows into a tree and birds come and make nests in its branches. Jesus also used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in, three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. And to remind us, Jesus always used stories and illustrations like these when speaking to the crowds. In fact, he never spoke to them without using such parables. This fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet. I will speak to you in parables. I will explain things hidden since the creation of the world. And that last line is a quote from the book of Psalms. And this is the word of God for the people of God. Now, when you first read this, it appears that Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God starts small. But it grows into something much larger. But I hope you've noticed in the previous two weeks and the previous stories that Jesus' stories always have a bit of a curveball in them. Especially for we English listeners and English readers all of these centuries later. Here Jesus is not talking so much about the kingdom of God becoming massive. He is talking about the intrusive, invasive takeover qualities of the mustard seed and of yeast. His is this steady, unstoppable, always growing, always persistent force brought to bear in the world. It won't always be rising to conquer, bigger, better, new, and improved. That's a reading shaped by our time and place in history, shaped by a culture that has winning and being number one as its leading value. Jesus' original listeners had no such conditioning. The mustard seed in the first century, first century Palestine, was just like kudzu. It overgrew and consumed everything around it. And Jesus' first listeners knew this, just as we know it about kudzu. A farmer who planted mustard in her garden could not turn her back on it. If she did, it would overrun every other vegetable or herb or grain planted in the field. And yeast obviously works the same way. Mysteriously, inexplicably to those living before microscopic science, the yeast would find its way into the flour and transform it. They didn't understand how it worked, but they knew that a tiny amount of yeast had a way of overtaking the entire lump of dough. Mustard and yeast overwhelmed and changed the very nature of their surroundings, and you did not need much of it 
for this to happen. So if Jesus were here today telling us his parables and his stories, he just might use kudzu instead of mustard or yeast to characterize the kingdom of God. All of these have the same qualities. They quietly overtake the environments into which they are introduced. They transform the landscape into which they are planted. They overrun everything that they touch. From just a few little seeds, a few microscopic bubbles, a few sprouting vines, they explode and they cannot be stopped. And such is the kingdom of God. If we can just let the kingdom of God have its start in people's hearts, in the midst of this planet's pain and suffering, the world will in fact, can in fact, change. Jesus is about insurrecting the status quo with hope and transformation. God's movement invades this world. And we have, I hope, a defiant trust that God's will indeed will be done that God's kingdom will indeed come on earth as it is in heaven, deliberately moving slowly at times, inch by inch, and foot by crawling foot. It is a profession of hope. And I have hope. I believe in the future. I am finished and done with Christian profession that is all about how bad things are. That can only condemn. That can only threaten. That can only retreat in fear or lash out in anger. I have no use for any expression of religion, especially a religion invoking the name of Jesus, that has given up on people or the world or the generations to come. I am not interested in a faith that has lost its faith. The reign of Christ does not always prevail in every generation, but it is always present, doing its quiet and transformative work. And I think, again, we are confusing the value of winning and conquering with the value of planting and persisting. The kingdom of God, the love of God come to earth doesn't always seem to prevail, but it is always present. Always. Now, honest admission, I sometimes fall right off of the hopeful wagon onto my head. Don't you? I read the news and I just get red ass angry. Chapped, furious, don't you? I look at how we treat one another and sometimes conclude that we are headed for extinction and we deserve it. I hear testimony like what was given before Congress this week about aliens and UFOs. I did not know that was coming last week when I talked about the Martian invasion. (laughs) But I hear testimony like that and I vacillate between two conclusions. Number one, good. If there are aliens of a higher order, please come teach us your ways. Or zap us with your antimatter guns and put us out of our misery. Or, two, they look at us, hateful, fearful, angry, suspicious, murderous to each other and to the planet, and they have probably redlined our little spot in the universe as a bad neighborhood. 
and they have about as much interest engaging with us as taking on some insidious virus that will contaminate everything it touches. And that the aliens who actually end up here are probably teenage drivers who lost their way. <laughs> now, now, I understand the poor mouthing. I do. I can really, really get in touch with the melancholy. I have days, weeks, whole stretches of time where I just sort of throw my hands up and say, who cares? Let it all burn. <laughs> the point must be that there's no point. I don't think I'm alone feeling that way at times. Do you, do you know the story of Sisyphus? I'm going to tell it to you. In Greek mythology, he was a king, a mighty wealthy king. And he was this combination of tycoon and mobster. A powerful but a treacherous man. And so the Greek gods sent him to Hades, beyond the river Styx, to a holding cell of the damned. And somehow he escaped. I mean, who gets out of hell? He did. They send him back. He escapes again. And finally, for his many crimes and his defiance, Zeus himself chains Sisyphus in the lowest realms of hell where he is condemned with one assignment for all eternity. He is to push a massive boulder up a hill. And every time the boulder gets to the top, it wiggles free and rolls back down to the bottom. And he has to start all over again, pushing that rock, that fruitless, futile task for all eternity. If you believe the Greek legends... Sisyphus is still there pushing his rock today. Well, some days it feels exactly like that. You do understand. It's easy in this world to become a nihilist. And not to wander too far down a philosophical footpath. But a nihilistic view is to see the world devoid of meaning. There's no real purpose. There's no future, there's no reason for life or living. We're trapped in our own existence of futility, uselessly pushing a rock up a hill only to have it roll away again and again. My God, so much of our collective Christianity is far more fatalistic and nihilistic than it is helpful and hopeful. And I do take on shades of this myself, but I refuse to live there. I choose, and I think it is certainly a conscious choice, to believe Jesus, this teacher Jesus, that life matters, that what we do with our life matters, and when the seeds of God's love and kingdom are planted, they will grow. They will, bit by bit, permeate their environment. Love will persist even when it does not prevail. And the harvest will come even if I don't live to see it. Albert Camus, French-Algerian writer, was a fan of the Sisyphus story. He was a nihilist, sort of paradoxically. He was a hopeful nihilist, if you can say such a thing. He said, though, there are only three ways to face our meaningless reality. Number one, go, <laughs> go ahead and commit suicide because nothing matters anyway. 
And often, that's what I witness in our society. It's like we're part of some giant suicide machine. Our wounds are self-inflicted. Our biggest troubles are within ourselves. Two, denial. Just stick your head in the sand, keep going about your routine, keep pushing that rock, but never admit your reality. Ignore all those deep questions you have. Compartmentalize all of those doubts. Just denial. And three, I like this one. Revolt against the hopelessness. I even like how he said that. Revolt against the hopelessness. You don't harm yourself. You don't ignore how things truly are. You just keep going. Keep searching for meaning. Keep making meaning, though you may or may not find it. Keep loving, though the world is full of hatred and apathy. Keep sowing. Keep planting, even though this season's harvest may fail. Keep persisting, though you may not see the work of your hands come to fruition. Keep living, though everything around you can be so absurd. You just keep on keeping on. You have no other real option. Now imagine what would happen in this farming theme. Imagine what would happen if all the farmers in the world suddenly became hopeless. I want you to think about that a minute and the implications of that. What if they get together in the little farmer meetings and they said things like this? Well, these are the last days. We might as well quit. The end is coming shortly. I guess Jesus is coming back. It won't matter if we plant this year. It really doesn't make a difference if we plant a crop. I mean, everybody has their TikTok and their Snapchats and all their grievances, they don't need us. Or if they said, those people over there, I don't like them. I don't like their lifestyle. I'm not, I'm not going to sell my vegetables to them. What if they said that? Or if they said something like, this world has got so threatening and the climate is so bad, I'm just going to protect my seeds for a few years and not plant them at all. Or if I can't be the best and the biggest farmer this year, I'm just going to quit. If my harvest and sales numbers are not better than they were last year, I'm just going to burn my barns to the ground. I don't know what the point of farming is anyway. We make all this food and there's still so many hungry people in the world. Does it really matter? Now, if farmers started talking like that, we would all be staging psychological interventions. Because if farmers lose their hope, we're all goners. Right? What a tragedy it would be for a group of people called by Christ, called to be the most hopeful population on the planet. How tragic will it be for our world if we are the ones who lose hope? I don't know if you know this, but when you prayed that sinner's prayer or you entered the baptismal waters or you were confirmed or you gave your heart to Jesus or whatever language you wish to use for your conversion to faith in Christ. When you made that profession of faith, you surrendered your right to be pessimistic. Right there. You surrendered your right to collapse into apathy. 
you no longer have permission to be a nihilist. In that decision to trust God, you entrusted yourself to hope and to the future, to keep doing what you do, to keep believing what you believe, to keep giving what you give, not just for yourself, but for all who will follow you. You are professing your faith that the kingdom of God will come and the love of God will steadily and quietly do its work. And you're more hope, you are right now today more hopeful than you think you are, and I can prove it. Are you ready? Thought exercise. Here we go. How many of you today would go back and live the life of your grandparents? Raise your hand. Yes, I would. My grandparents were all born in the 19-teens. Horse and wagon, wood stoves, no electricity, subsistence farming, poverty, no nearby medical care, no nearby nothing, no weather predictions. My grandparents, all my grandparents saw the Spanish flu, World War I, the Dust Bowl, the Great Depression, World War II, the rise of communist Europe and Asia. They sent their sons to Korea and Vietnam, the assassination of a president, the advent of atomic weapons, the upheaval, the necessary upheaval of the civil rights movement. They didn't even have disposable diapers or espresso machines. I can go on and on. And I can tell you this, I'm not going back there. I like air conditioning. That was hard living, hard living. Lives were short. Times were tough. And our lives today are soft by comparison. I'm not going back there. Let's continue, shall we? How many of you would switch places with your grandchildren? There is the potential for the coming generations, I'm talking to you, young man, that they will experience a life of incredible advancement, convenience, health, wellness. And there is also the chance, a greater statistical chance, that theirs will be a life of danger. Never has the human race had so much potential, and never has the human race so teetered on the edge of its own self-destruction. Nuclear fission, artificial intelligence, robotics, genetic manipulation, nanotechnology. I guess we can add alien invasion now to the list. It could be a utopia, but it could also send us back to the Stone Age, Stone Age or make us slaves to our own creations. Now, how many of you want to go forward and live that existence? My point is this. For the overwhelming majority of us, we don't want to go back. And we're terrified of going forward. That tells us something. It tells us that the good old days were not as good as we were told. Or we'd all go back. And the future is more unpredictable than we have been told. So here we are in our time choosing the lives we have now. How ironic is that? Choosing the time, space, and place we have now. 
And that's as much a demonstration of hope as if you could go back or go forward. You believe, sitting there today in these seats, you believe right now that there is something about today worth holding on to and living out. And you're more hopeful than you thought you were. We are surrounded by all of these uh, props this morning. Grit and Grace is the official folk life production of Walton County. They put on a play each year. You can see the play right here, 2 o'clock this afternoon. They put on a play each year, stories and songs, and I've, I've been the playwright for them three times. So obviously I love what they do, acting out and passing on the history of this community going back hundreds of years. I love their name, Grit and Grace. This is their byline. It has taken grit to get us here today. And it will take the grace of God to sustain us. And that is hope. That is persevering, planting, professing hope. The past has taught us to believe that. And the future demands and requires it.